1: So we got retail sales out this morning and they were great. US retail sales advanced in July by the most this year, which is good. But it's not as good as consumer confidence, which is at a 15-year high. And this is raising some kind of dissonance and some kind of questions among economists, including for Lara Rame. She's a senior economist at FS Investments, uh, which oversees about $20.5 billion and is based in Philadelphia. Lara, uh, can you give me a sense of why it's concerning that there isn't the same kind of enthusiasm that we're seeing in retail sales? as in the consumer confidence readings.
2: Yeah. Uh, You know, I think this disconnect is something that we're seeing in lots of areas of the economy and in financial markets. But specific to retail sales, we've had the consumer be the real workhorse of our economy this entire expansion. You've had growth averaging 2% overall. Consumer spending has been averaging 3%. And here's the problem right, that cannot continue indefinitely. The savings rate has been chiseled down from over 5% to now only 3.8%. That's historically relatively low. Wait,
1: wait, wait. So in other words, people... Americans are going out and they're digging into their savings so that they can go to Home Depot and renovate their bathroom or buy that really nice pan that they've been looking for. That's
2: exactly right. I mean, you have to think about where you're going to get the money to spend, and it's either going to come from wages and income or it's going to come from your savings and some other things like stock market gains or housing appreciation. But really, we look at those two big factors of income and savings and income has been really lagging. That's one of the things we're not seeing during this recovery very robustly. Usually at this stage in the recovery, we're seeing better wage gains than we're seeing right now.
1: Let's go a little deeper here, because when we talk about uh, retail sales, are we really talking about buying that really nice pan or buying that beautiful shirt that you've been looking at that's cost $300 and is way above your means? Or are we talking about people uh, paying more for rent, paying more for healthcare, paying more for the necessities in their life and getting Squeezed on every end.
2: That, you know, what you bring up is a huge issue right now that we're seeing across the economy. And that's that what we call discretionary spending, what people can spend on vacations, what they can spend on restaurants, what they can spend on sporting goods is getting crowded out to a greater and greater degree, most importantly by higher spending on healthcare. We've seen that, you know, over the last uh several decades really increase as a share of consumer spending. So again, you know, when we can look at some numbers to that just yeah. of like what what percentage healthcare spending is as a proportion of retail sales? It's uh, uh, so retail sales it's different, is but yeah, super it's different, but yeah, uh, but total spending, you're looking at almost 20% now when up from 8%. So, you know, over, that's over several decades, but it's a huge difference. And you add in higher cost of education, which over a lifetime is less, but still is more expensive now than it was two decades ago. You're really seeing consumers when it comes to, you know, those extra purchases, having to dig into their savings more and having to really rely on higher income. And I can't stress enough with productivity as low as it's been, and we got second quarter productivity numbers, not terribly impressive. We're just not going to see those standard of living or real wage gains. Yeah, I was just reading an article
1: actually that uh, Japan's economy is now growing at the fastest pace among the G7 nations, which is an amazing, something. amazing turn of fate, right? Um, well, digging into the retail sales, I want yeah. to look at where we saw people actually spending and just to give some perspective. So consumption counts for 70 percent of the U.S. economy. So this is huge, right? So if people dig into their savings, maybe that's actually, you know, not so bad. Maybe economists think, hey, you know, if they do it for long enough, maybe it could spur some growth and be the stimulus, the, fi- the fiscal stimulus, de facto, to fiscal stimulus. Uh, but what, where we saw the gains were at department stores, which is really interesting because they've been hammered recently. Um, also
2: sporting goods retailers and building supply outlets. Um, what's your take on this? So, you know, I think I think we have to, you know, month to month all of these categories are really volatile. We did see a recovery in department store sales but that was after two months of pretty significant declines. So we were kind of due for a bounce. I think one of the issues was we had Amazon Prime Day fall in July and that did cause a big boost in non-store retailers. I just can't believe that, you, that an entire you... company can create a holiday <laughs> a and holiday, and like, yeah. holiday to buy our stuff and people buy it. Okay, whatever. Maybe we need Amazon Prime Day for businesses (laughs) to get them to start spending more robustly. But yeah. (laughs) So Lara, as an
1: economist who is advising on how to invest, how do you make sense of all of this
2: uh, sort of different pieces of data that paint kind of a a crooked picture? Uh, To me, what we need to get comfortable with is the fact that we're just probably not going to see growth accelerate from here. And here's 2%. It feels uh, pretty, it feels stable, it feels boring, it feels sluggish, and that's because it is. But we are just stuck in this rut. I, I tell people 2% is the new 3%. In the 80s and 90s, we grew at 3%. Now we're going to grow at 2%, and you have to invest accordingly. So does that mean that bonds still look okay to
1: you and that stocks might be a little expensive but aren't going to be due for a big fall? We're just going to keep muddling along in this?
2: You know, I think that um, that the financial markets overall look like they've gotten ahead of economic fundamentals. On the inflation front, I still think that interest rates and inflation are going to be low. I see low interest rates out as far as I can look, I see a cautious Fed. um, But I think when it comes to other asset prices, I think there's a lot of euphoria out there. And importantly, no evidence that anybody is discounting any kind of downside surprise, economic, financial market, or geopolitical, none of these risks are counted in. So that's where I don't, see the optimism that I feel like the markets are pricing in right now. Yeah, we were talking before yeah. the show that, uh, you know,
1: concerns about nuclear war brought the market down a little touch. Then everybody was like, ah, whatever, not a big deal. Lara Rehm, thank you so much for for joining us. Truly a pleasure to speak with you. Lara Rehm is senior economist at FS Investments, which oversees about $20.5 billion and is based in Philadelphia. Uh Uh, One area where it was not little changed was in the retail sales data that we got earlier today. They came in ahead of expectations. They were really great. Uh, But I was speaking with Seema Shah ahead of this segment. She was saying doesn't seem to jibe exactly with some of the earnings that we've gotten out of some of the big retailers. And she joins us here, Seema Shah, Consumer Discretionary Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Can you explain a little bit what's going on here?
3: Right. So there's no doubt retail sales for July were very strong. Um, I was particularly surprised about the strength in autos, given what we saw earlier this month when the big three released their auto sales. They were all down significantly. And then we got the auto parts uh, suppliers that also also are down. And a lot of these categories that appeared very strong doesn't match with what the actual companies are saying. So... I would step back and think that one month doesn't make a trend and see how Q3 earnings come out, because if there was a lot of incentives, at least on the autos or promotions on the retail side, it could mean that margins are impacted. And so that that's part of why sales were so strong in July. Do you have any sense where the strength was? I mean, because we did get the Home Depot
1: numbers and they were right. great. And Wall Street doesn't care at all because it had already priced it all in. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, where, where are the where are the surprises? Right. Where could they be coming from?
3: Right. I definitely think building materials has been strong consistently. Home Depot is an excellent operator, has done very well. They raised their guidance. This is the highest quarterly sales and earnings I think they've had in the company's history. Uh, performing very well, still having the tailwind of home home renovation, housing market improvement. So definitely strength is coming uh, from there. I mean, in other sectors, you're seeing a little bit less bad. Department stores were less bad than, Party <laughs> than people anticipated. I still think, um, but you know, a lot of the companies I cover continue to be weak and they're they're weak because of the online effect and I and just not having that compelling product. I just don't think people want or maybe have the capacity to spend as much as they used to and if they do they're shifting to online particularly amazon as people want, price transparency, and as other retailers use Amazon as a marketplace.
1: And Amazon wants to sell everything, including bonds, everything. Uh, which we <laughs> have just been talking about. Right. Uh, when you were saying that you have seen some persistent weakness in the companies that you cover, can you give us some specifics and why it's important to watch these companies and specific results out of them to get a better gauge, perhaps, and what's really going on in these broad sort of macro looks at retail sales?
3: Right. I mean, part of it is just to step back and see where companies fit in the competitive landscape. So one, Company I cover is Signet, which had, up until maybe a few quarters ago, been very resilient as a destination for where people would go when they wanted to get engaged and buy a ring. And you've seen their comms. And their earnings, you know, consistently been weak recently. And their CEO left, right? <laughs> yeah. It was like a big turmoil. As as But as, what you're seeing now is now it's more competition from the Macy's of the world. The department stores who are looking for growth some way, and I've just been speaking about this, have really come into sort of the hard lines retail subsector. You're seeing emphasis on beauty, emphasis on home, and emphasis on fine jewelry. And the retailers I cover are seeing that pressure. So this is on top of the fact that you have Amazon and Wayfair in these categories. So So,
1: apart from Signet, who are the other, uh, which are the other companies that are most affected by this shift toward beauty, home improvement, and uh, online?
3: Yeah, online. I mean, really, I can't think of anyone who's not affected. I cover a wide swath of companies, and they're all really affected from GNC to Vitamin Shop to Staples, Office Depot. And I think you're even seeing, I know Dick's reported, and I don't cover that, but- If you think about how Kohl's commented and JCPenney commented about how they're deepening their penetration and athleisure and the fact that Under Armour went and started distributing through Kohl's, it's not maybe surprising that Dix is doing, you know, kind of struggling today as it is. And it reminds me of when I saw the success of Bed Bath & Beyond and Best Buy after the bankruptcies of Circuit Cities and Linens and things. When there's consolidation, the big guy wins, but then after that comes and they have to comp again and figure out a way to grow, it becomes very difficult.
1: So early in the program, we were speaking with Lara Rame of FS Investments, and mm-hmm. she was looking at the savings rate. And this really struck me mm-hmm. uh, that the savings rate of U.S. consumers has been declining pretty steadily. Mm-hmm. And it seems to suggest that people are digging into their uh, stockpiles of cash to mm-hmm. go out and, and spend. This is what's driving consumer expenditures, right. uh,
3: does that concern you? It definitely does. And I think it goes back, you and I have talked about this at length, consumer credit and the fact that there are rising charge-off rates on the retail credit cards and also maybe auto loan delinquencies. And I just recently read, I think it was in Bloomberg, that the subprime auto loans are really underwater. I mean, the, so deep,
1: the deep subprime the deep auto sub-prime, loans have, have been that's performing just, particularly terribly. Right. And this is concerning to and a lot of people. And this is sort of the
3: incremental customer that any retailer who uses credit to fuel their sales is maybe you know maybe that's not their target customer but as you get to sort of how you're going to drive sales you get to promotions and figuring out incentives to drive that traffic so i definitely think it's a concern that people are digging into their savings and or using credit and not being able to pay it back.
1: Well, and we just got Capital One earnings, and even though right. there were some <clears> improvements <throat> in the auto loan side in the credit card side, you saw charge-offs right. increase. You're seeing net interest coverage uh, come down, or net uh, coverage for these losses uh, come down, and having to boost reserves. So uh, this speaks to your concern. Uh, just giving a forward spin to this, mm-hmm. how are the retailers that you cover projecting future earnings? In other words how much are we going to see an ongoing kind of grind upward in retail sales or not?
3: Oh, I mean, I think that you might see, you know, you might see a little bit of grind higher in the home improvement side. So the floor and decors of the world, Home Depot, even maybe Lowe's. But, you know, if you step back and think of where they are, they might be mid-cycle in the housing tailwind. So then it becomes a matter of, you know, how much further can people renovate in their home? I don't think that that's a, a something that's, at risk right now but something that I personally would keep an eye on and look at the building products companies and see how they're reporting but for the other companies I you know I think they're really we'll have to see how back to school goes there's like that there's that saying so it goes back to school so it goes holiday so I'd be really interested to see how back to school is across. Are the you retail- buying?
1: Are you buying a ton of stuff for your kids to go back to school? No. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I buy, so the there very we go. necessities And then I'm like I'll buy it later. And I think holiday <laughs> the <you SEMA> know- <laughs> test. We just failed for the holiday season. Just want to say that on the record. But multiple retailers have already commented that they think Q4 will be exceptionally promotional. So it depends on where their inventory. Just hold is on a second. In. Promotional. Yeah. That's bad thing. Absolutely. Because unless <laughs> they've planned for it and they've bought their merchandise in a way that they can make some profit or merchandise margin it's going to be you know it's going to be tough for them and you know you're going to see more pressure from online retail and you know part of it you know what we saw maybe in uh, online in july could have been from amazon prime day so that's something else to consider
1: you know it's so interesting because i was actually reading this bank of america merrill lynch funds fund survey for august Mm -hmm. and people uh, were talking about how they've been dramatically ratcheting back their expectations for earnings going forward. In other words, we might have seen already the peak of earnings in this past quarter, which is a little bit alarming considering.
3: Right. I mean, for the most part, they haven't been that great. There are always bright spots. It's not like physical stores are going away and no one's shopping ever again. But you have to think about where (laughs) we came from, from 2000 to 2010, when we really overbuilt the malls and we built multiple concepts into over a thousand stores each. Then you had this online come. And then how much can, do people actually want? Maybe the mindset and consumer behaviors less attached to stuff and Maybe. minimalist, you know, that to would some be, extent. That would be very un-American. Seema <laughs>
1: Shah, thank you so much for joining us. As thank always, you. a pleasure to speak with you. Seema Shah is consumer discretionary analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, taking a look at some of the dissonance within the retail sales and the earnings reports that we're getting out of retailers that perhaps aren't seeing that mm, enthusiasm. We have heard a lot about the deregulation of Wall Street, or at least the ongoing discussions to do so. And here with an insider's look at just how regulated uh, the investment industry in particular is and what remains as sort of a possible target for possibly tightening things up or loosening things up. But with a better view than I have is Norm Champ, partner uh, within the investment funds group at Kirkland and Ellis, also uh, the former director of the Division of Investment Management at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and an author of a new book, Going Public, My Adventures Inside the SEC and How to Prevent the Next Devastating Crisis. So, Norm, thank you so much for joining us. I would love to get a sense from you. Are you concerned about all of the talk about rolling back some of the regulation? I mean, we've talked about the Department of Labor fiduciary rule uh, getting rolled back. Do you think that this could make the financial system less safe?
4: No, not at all. So much of what was in Dodd-Frank after the crisis – had nothing to do with the crisis and was expanding federal government power over the financial services industry, which is not something that we needed, right? There were certain things in Dodd Frank that addressed crisis issues, uh, but most of what was in there were political wish list kind of things that have been sitting around for a long time. So I think it's important to get regulation rolled back to some degree. I think you're already seeing the impact of less regulation coming out of Washington right the Obama administration passed hundred million dollar rules that's rules that take a hundred million out of the economy the total number of rules they did like that for that amount to more than 16 billion dollars in several years of the administration that's taken a lot of money out of the economy. Just slowing that down the last six months, so basically very few federal rules the last six months, I think is part of why you're seeing the economy do better, because you're having less overhang of all this regulation. So I'd like to see them go farther and be able to roll back some of the things that were done.
1: Well, we've heard particular emphasis on the Volcker Rule, uh, which specifically targets banks trading with their own capital. Do you think that uh, the economy would do better if we did see a full rollback of that and more permission?
4: Volcker Rule is an interesting question, right? Uh, you had the American Bankers Association and all the lobbying groups uh, talking about Volcker and how terrible it was and how we needed not have it. Since it's passed and since the new administration came in, I've, I've heard precious little about rolling it back. Uh, you know, It becomes another barrier to entry for banking. It becomes another cost that smaller banks can't do. And we've had almost no bank startups in the United States in the last 10 years, uh, partly because of all this regulation. Uh, so you're not seeing much political movement around repealing Volcker. Um, I wonder if they will attack some of these things by different means. So Remember, if you go back to Congress and try to roll back the Volcker provision, those kinds of things, or have the regulators roll it back, that's going to take time. And obviously, on the Hill right now, nothing's happening. Something like Volcker, though, or something like the banks, I'd imagine there they might just reduce the capital requirements. So, if you, you we took banks from basically three to four percent capital pre-crisis to about ten percent now. If they just move that down a bit, you're going to have banks lending more and you're going to have more economic activity. I have a feeling they might approach it that way as, a trying, as opposed to trying to attack Volker.
1: Can you give me a sense of during your tenure at the SEC, what your focus was, what your, uh, where you put your efforts to try to make the financial system safer and where you think things went wrong to sort of combine into the 2008 debacle?
4: So the biggest thing that we were working on at the SEC was trying to figure out how to reform money market mutual funds. So. Among the many other crises in the fall of 2008, a fund called Primary Reserve uh, turned out woke up on September 12th. Broke the uh, buck. Yep. And it found out that it owned $653 million worth of Lehman debt, which was suddenly worth zero, right? And so that led to a run on money market mutual funds. And that was a big problem because many companies relied on that money and those funds to finance their operations. And suddenly that money was sucked out. You had Treasury have to step in and guarantee all money market mutual funds in the United States. They did so with a $50 million fund on a $3 trillion industry. So, But confidence is a funny thing, and they stopped the run. The biggest thing we were working on is trying to reform them, get them to have a floating net asset value so that investors are more understanding of what the risks are. We partially succeeded on that. We floated the institutional funds, not the retail funds, not the government funds. But you know it was progress and was better than where we were. Um, what really drove the crisis, though, was you know not money market funds. What drove the crisis was government housing policy. Government has been and still does ruthlessly and relentlessly push housing. Right? We keep interest rates low. We guarantee mortgages with the GSEs. We do all of that to get people into houses. It sounds great to be in a house. If you're someone who got foreclosed on in 2009, 2010, though, your experience of home ownership is not so hot. Uh, and so that. We've still got that going on now. We are still relentlessly pushing housing. And one of the tragedies of the Obama administration is after raising the minimum down payment for a mortgage to 20% right after the crisis – 2014, only six years later, they cut the minimum down payment for a house back to 3% on a guaranteed mortgage. So
1: do you think that we are just as vulnerable at this point as we were uh, leading up to the 2008 crisis?
4: I do think banks have been more conservative in who they're lending to. And you see some of these, uh, the, the securitization rules have helped that and have restricted some of the real offloading of the debt from bank balance sheets. So I'd actually say in the housing sector, we're probably in a little bit better shape. But you are seeing the inflation, obviously, the stock market that has to do with low rates and that has to do with people seeking return. Um, I am concerned about what's going to happen when someday interest rates go up. I have a feeling there are spots in the economy where people are relying on low interest rates that we probably haven't focused on yet. And if we ever get real interest rates, then those are, that's a place where I would look for problems.
1: If you were in the SEC today, what would be your focus?
4: So number one focus would be, which the chairman, the very first thing the chairman did was solicit, the new chairman, Jay Clayton, very first thing he did was solicit further comment on the fiduciary rule that you mentioned earlier. And it's imperative that the SEC seize back the momentum and that that be the place. If there's going to be a uniform standard for broker dealers and investment advisors, it should come out of the SEC, not out of the Department of Labor. Department of Labor just doesn't understand how these firms work and what's going on, uh, it should come out of the SEC. So that'd be high on my list. Second on my list, and I think the chair is obviously pursuing it, is we've got to get more companies to go public in the United States. Um, our markets are still a crown jewel of the US economy, um, but IPOs are about half and on average what they were before 2000. So since 2000 versus before, and we have about half the public companies we had 20 years ago. Our markets are not going to stay in the leadership position they're in unless we take some steps to help people go public here. And that would include rolling back some of the Dodd-Frank things like pay ratio and some of these very political disclosure items that are discouraging people from going public.
1: Norm Cham, thank you so much for joining us. Norm Cham, partner in the investment funds group at Kirkland & Ellis, also the former director of the Division of Investment Management at the US Securities and Exchange Commission. He has a new book. It's called Going Public: My Adventures Inside the SEC and How to Prevent the Next Devastating Crisis. That Amazon bond sale seems to be drawing a lot of investor interest, hearing uh, that the, the, the potential bids to buy this particular debt, which could end up being a $16 billion offering, uh, exceed $20 billion. Here to give us a little bit more sense of, uh, first of all, just how well this debt offering is probably going to be priced and also what this means for Amazon's uh Uh, fiscal structure, I want to bring in Noel Hebert. He's senior U.S. credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Noel, can you just give us a sense of what your feeling is about the levels that this debt is being priced at or will likely be priced at later today, as well as what this means for Amazon's creditworthiness?
0: Yeah, so I think, uh, so first of all, thanks for having me on, Lisa. And, and uh, I think, you know, at the front end of the curve, at least, you know, the initial talk, uh, you know, we saw a little bit of a concession or a discount to where Amazon's current bonds trade. So I would expect there's going to be certainly a lot of demand at that front end of the curve that comes, you know, that maybe pushes that talk tighter. Later out into the curve, when you start looking at the 30 and the 40 year piece, they're a little bit tight to kind of where Amazon implied would be. Uh, so we'll see kind of how that shapes up, but that longer end of the curve tends to be, you know, as much reverse inquiry and people sort of needing that longer dated paper as anything else. So well, hold on, back, oh,
1: no, back up. No, because sure. uh, when you say like longer dated, <laughs> da, 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 like let's put this in a perspective. So Amazon, a company that sure. has completely profoundly disrupted the entire retail industry, is selling bonds that mature in 40 years and people mm-hmm. can't wait to buy it. And not only that, but they're probably going to accept about four and a half percent yields to buy this stuff. Which is markedly lower uh, than where it would have been, say three years ago, just based on market valuations. That's crazy, no? Uh,
0: Well, well, I think compliance wouldn't like me to say crazy. So uh, let's (laughs) go with uh, it's it's very unique. Uh, (laughs) It's unique. All right, we'll go with that. So we'll say, but I mean, you know, AT and T just for context, right? So they just came out with a piece of paper for for their deal making, and you're talking about, you know about 200 basis points over versus 160 or whatever we're talking on Amazon. So much tighter, certainly, to AT&T, more in line with sort of some of the stuff, maybe a little bit back of what we saw from like a Home Depot or an Oracle for guys that have similar sort of that similar longer-dated stuff. But to your point, a lot more sort of business volatility potentially in the long term for a company like Amazon relative to a Home Depot.
1: Well, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because with respect to their balance sheet, they have been spending aggressively to... Increase their domination uh, across the world in various mm-hmm. facets of buying whatever you can imagine. So, you know, I can ima- I can, I can see that perhaps some of these expenditures will pay off. But uh, can you speak a little bit about what the uncertainties
0: are? I think there's a number of them, one uh, not least of which being is, you know, as they've grown, right, they've increasingly increased their, increasingly increased, but they've added <laughs> to okay. their fixed cost base. Uh, so you're turning from sort of that sort of traditional, you know, e sort of low infrastructure dynamic into a much more high cost, fixed cost infrastructure, whether it's with the AWS or now obviously with Whole Foods, et cetera. So it's really going to change the mechanics of their business in terms of the capital investment that's going to be required to, you know know, keep all these investments going. And then, of course, they're trying to play in just about every space that's known to man, which, again, some of those are going to work. Some of those aren't going to work. But at the end of the day, they are going to be left with a fair amount of debt. You don't generate a ton of profit. They generate okay cash flow, but people have to be careful about how they account for that cash flow because they use capital leases pretty aggressively as opposed to running stuff through capex so that kind of from an accounting parlance standpoint boosts the perception of free cash flow so you know they're definitely very aggressive in not only how they approach the marketplace but also how they approach their balance sheet that said you know you're going to be left maybe a couple times levered after this deal depending on how much they do so it's not going to be you know totally egregious.
1: And when you say AWS, that's Amazon Web Services uh, yes, Cloud. So no no problem, but I think that this is an important point that you're making. In other words, uh, you know, whether you're talking about, uh, you know, accessing the cloud or building out your tech, uh, or whether you're talking about providing grocery services, this is a very different thing than having an online bartering platform for people to sort of uh, meet and exchange their goods, right? Also, there has been talk about Amazon possibly building out their own uh, shipping and delivering systems. Systems which also would uh, would, would require uh, more expenditures, right?
0: Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, it's kind of a unique time and place, I guess, in corporate history, right? Because whether you look at these guys or you look at uh, Tesla or Netflix or whoever it happens to be, you know, investors have been very willing uh, in this environment to fund, you know, money neutral or dollar neutral, cash flow neutral or cash losing operations on the prospect of whatever the future growth might be. Um I can't really harken back to think of a time that's quite like that. Uh, So for me as a credit investor, it's, it's kind of a bizarre time and place. But, yeah. but to your point, yeah. The more stuff they bring in, the more stuff you get to fund, and it gets harder and harder to be successful at everything you do. You know, we've seen even with very successful companies like Apple, you know, they still don't really have a great TV platform. Right. You know, Sometimes things fail. So,
1: Noel Hebert, thank you so much for that caller. Noel Hebert is our senior U.S. credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and my beacon of reason in this odd market.